Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So weeks after its release date, we finally decided to discuss Joker, perhaps the most controversial film of 2019. Uh, Directed and written by Todd Phillips with co-writer Scott Silver, it's based on two classic films by Martin Scorsese, uh, Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. Joaquin Phoenix stars as the Joker, introducing a new 1980s origin story for the classic Batman villain. Um, I saw this like two months ago and obviously had to write about it quite a lot at work. Morgan just saw this film and hated it. This is going to be a fun episode. (laughs) Yes, we thought we'd really stay with the zeitgeist and talk (laughs) about this release from early October. On today, November 17th, as we record, we are with it. We are hip. We are here to talk about this movie. There was like a good month-long period where I was like, shut the fuck up. I did not want to hear another word about the Joker, but now Morgan's seen it. I'm kind of like, I feel like it's time for the post-mortem, you know? In between, I've gone to the whole London Film Festival, you know, had some time to breathe. And now it's time to dissect this. Like, we're kids in a teen sitcom in their first frog dissecting class. Let's pull (laughs) apart that gristle and see what's inside. Yes, Yes, indeed. This is the worst movie I've seen all year. It's fully the worst film, worst new film. Although I don't think I've seen an older film that's worse, frankly. I cannot believe that anyone is taking this seriously. It is so embarrassing that anyone thinks this is good. I'm sorry, but I'm just really embarrassed for the entire critical and Hollywood community. Just a great combo of like nostalgia and masculinity and grading on a curve of superhero films and hype. Just really unfortunate. Wild. Really bad. Yep. So as background, this premiered at the Venice Film Festival in competition, which is a very prestigious slot. Venice, uh, as a side note, basically never plays films from women directors. They'll play like one or two out of 17, which just adds some context for this movie playing. And it won the top prize, The Golden Lion, which everyone was just like, what the fuck? And the reviews out of Venice were mostly glowing. And that's interesting because this movie sucks. But what kind of wound up happening, as people will recall, is that you had some of the critics who were just like, this movie is amazing. And then other people sort of being like, this movie is obviously going to be the death of society. And then people who were like, no, it's going to be the best movie ever. Most of whom had not seen it. And I found all of that discussion on every side very, very irritating. Like, it's just not helpful. It's not productive. So by the time it actually was released, I was like, I'm going to see this at some point, but I just can't cope with this right now. Like, I don't care enough. I don't want to deal with this. And um, when it was released, the reviews were much more mixed. So I saw it as I did Avengers Endgame this year, almost a full two months after it had been released. There were like six other people in the theater. I had a just calm experience with the film and uh, concluded that it was garbage. So that's (laughs) how we've wound up here today. I guess we should start by giving some broader context for the film and how it happened, which is that they just really wanted to make a Martin Scorsese film so badly. And by the way, I mean Todd Phillips, who is responsible for this. The director and co-writer Todd Phillips, who is 
been very keen to take full credit for every element of the film. It's like the posters are like a Todd Phillips film. So we now unfortunately all have to know Todd Phillips's name. Before now, he was known for the Hangover franchise. There are some extremely distasteful stories about his personal ethics floating around, including an interview where he openly brags about mistreating a baby on the set of The Hangover 2 in a really disturbing way. He seems like a really unpleasant person just in many ways, which kind of shines through in the way that he discusses these films. He very much wanted to move on from comedy and get taken seriously. He decided to stop making comedy films because he thought that woke culture had ruined comedy and everyone's too terrified of being offended, so no one's funny anymore, which is in itself hilarious. And he has said in interviews that he used the Joker's kind of brand to sneak a quote-unquote real film into the studio system. Uh, This is one of like several kind of more mid-budget films that are kind of in the works from studios that are experimenting with doing more kind of adult rated and like less formulaic superhero spinoffs, which like I'm interested in in general. But what he did here was just directly rip off two Scorsese films. There was a brief period where Marty himself was attached as a producer, but like I don't think he really had any input into this film in any serious way. And since then, there's been all this controversy about him versus Marvel, and he's kind of talked about how he can't really get in on the idea of superheroes like he just couldn't find a creative viewpoint on it which is fair enough because he is known for not making this kind of film um but this movie if you've seen taxi driver and the king of comedy it is a very clear mashup of those it has much more in common with those than it does with anything to do with batman or the joker at all taxi driver is a story about someone played by robert de niro it's a guy who drives a taxi and has a lot of mental health problems and trauma problems and kind of goes on a shooting spree and is very paranoid. And it's it's just like a really interesting character study movie. It's one of the icons of sort of 1970s, 80s filmmaking in New York. And then King of Comedy is a lesser known film, but this, this movie riffs on it very closely. It also stars De Niro in a very different role. It's like this guy who is completely obsessed with this TV like late night talk show host and uh, De Niro's character is a wannabe comedian and he is always pretending to himself that he already he already hosts his own late night talk show so he's sort of hallucinating and stalking this talk show host along with this other woman who's also obsessed with her um, obsessed with him and he's also stalking this woman in his apartment complex or who works near where he lives um, who is like an attractive young black woman, which is relevant because they mapped that very directly onto this film as well. And in this movie, they take a kind of a combination of those two stories. So they have the Joker as this guy who has a lot of mental health issues, lives alone with his mother, and he is also really obsessed with this late night talk show host who he sees as a father figure who is played by Robert De Niro in the movie. And his obsession with this talk show host and his desire to be a stand-up comedian instead of like a jobbing clown, which is his day job, kind of leads him to go off the deep end after he uh, loses some of his mental health treatment due to budget cuts from the government. A series of absurd artificial coincidences conspire to make sure that his life is hell and he's persecuted. And he goes off the deep end and becomes this sort of cult-like figure in the city who represents the class struggle between working class people who are mistreated and then the upper kind of 1%. And he himself is not a political person, but he becomes this sort of avatar of that chaos in Gotham City. We're going to go into the politics towards the end of the episode. We've got a lot to talk about here. But conceptually speaking, this uh, film is 
spiderweb thin. <laughs> it, is, it is really flimsy. It thinks it's very smart. It's, it's used a lot of kind of Scorsese-era iconography to make you take everything very seriously. But it is 100% knitted together from cliches with a solid, good performance from Joaquin Phoenix in the lead role. Well, I just was amazed by how bad the screenplay was. And the screenplay was leaked online before it came out, and I did not read it, but there were all these people tweeting about how bad it was. And in interviews, they were talking about how they were like rewriting it on the fly on set every day. So I have no idea how closely what you see in the film hues to an actual written screenplay that existed, you know, pre-production. But it is just abysmal. Like... Every time anyone says anything, it is so on the nose and obvious. It's like beyond belief. This movie is really corny. Like I was just, there was, there's like a sign in his clown office that says, don't forget to smile. And to show how edgy he is, he like crosses off the forget to. So it just says, don't smile. And I'm like, this is some Jared Leto shit. This is like the fucking Suicide Squad Joker. It is so corny and like it is so hungry to be taken seriously and I just remember kind of when the first trailer came out writing an article about how this thing was fucking created in a lab to play into what a certain type of film bro really takes seriously in cinema and it's this kind of very masculine nostalgia and the way that this takes things from actually good Scorsese films and then explains it in such a simple and like stupid way. <laughs> and it's like, like Morgan said, there is no subtext whatsoever except from unintentional problematic subtext, which we will discuss later. <laughs> right. So I went in with really low expectations. We had talked before I saw it about how much you disliked it. And there were other reviews I had seen that were not positive. Although, again, there were some other critics who did like it, but I was not expecting to like this film, but I went in, I tried to have an open mind. Obviously I always try to do that. Joaquin Phoenix is one of my very, very favorite actors. I love him. We'll talk a little bit more about his performance in a minute, but I wanted to find something to like in this movie. And within like five minutes, I was like, Oh no, no, this is real bad. So he's gone in to have a meeting with his social worker and literally says to her, is it just me or is it getting crazier out there? And I was like, oh no, no, that's not good. And then like the number of things he says in the movie like that, for instance, near the end, I used to think my life was a tragedy, but now I realize it's a fucking comedy. Like, just, no, no, that's not how you write anything. It's that's not like good. like a hoodie slogan for an early 2000s new metal band. Yeah. And... So the screenplay is totally inept. The themes don't make any sense. And I also found the production, like, it's technically competent. The cinematography is fine. But none, nothing about the cinematography, for instance, really struck me as that inspired. Because well, it's, it's Todd so... Phillips's hangover cinematographer. I yeah. think the true star of this movie is Mark Friedberg, who is the production designer, who did the production design on If Beale Street Could Talk and Selma and a few other very respected films, um, Patterson, I think. Yes. And all of the production design in this is like very kind of grainy, detailed 1970s, 80s New York inspired. And it, it looks real fucking good. The costumes as well are good because like they're subtle and not playing into like really cliched time period aesthetics. They're like quite realistic looking. Well done. 
adds a lot to a film, which is, you know, the the inner heart is the problem. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I do think the production design was really good. I liked the costumes. But, like, the music was really over the top. The cinematography is not very good. Again, it's not, like, bad, but it's just sort of, it's trying so hard to be a particular thing that already exists, that it has nothing of its own to contribute, right? That it felt so much like this again recreation to me like the whole movie that I it had no life and I had seen some critics say like oh I was expecting not to like it but I felt like it was just so well made that it really did something for me and like that's fine but I don't understand that reaction because it felt like such a pastiche that I really couldn't make anything out of it and again, even if you did like the cinematography or whatever, the script is so abysmal. Like, there's just nothing there. And even Joaquin Phoenix, I thought he was fine, but the script is so bad that, like, there's just not enough there, right? And, well, everything um, to do with his character is so kind of artificially constructed to get us to a certain place in the story that he doesn't seem real at all, but he also doesn't, like, resemble the character we know from the comics. I mean, as you said before, Todd Phillips has said, like, oh, we were doing this to sort of sneak a real film, doing air quotes, into the studio system. And consequently, it has nothing to do with Batman while also making reference to this Batman stuff. And it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's been incredibly fucking successful. Like, it has made almost a billion dollars at this point. It has made a billion dollars. It has crossed that line. So congratulations to them. It really has taken over everything. And again, obviously with the general public, if you're a person who is going to go see this movie, people clearly have liked it. Yeah. But it's just, it's just really bad. And like women like it. I am talking about this in a very kind of gendered way because it does, you know, a lot of like masculinity stuff plays into this. But yes, many women love this film. I'm sure they do, which is depressing. <laughs> um, but, like, the big sort of brouhaha over when it was coming out was that, like, there were literally cops being deployed in the United States to movie theaters because they were terrified that there were going to be, like, shootings, whatever. And a bunch of the film critics who saw it at Venice were like, it's really good, but I think it's going to, like, destroy society because, like, people are going to, you know, whatever. Which I think was you know well it was also just like a massive misinterpretation of the actual conversation that was happening about how characters like this play into certain mindsets and become icons for like depressed aggressive 4chan misogynists you know which they did and there were like a couple of threats but it wasn't like it wasn't like it was like oh there's going to be like a countrywide terrorist threat at movie screenings or that police were going to solve that problem at all because what was actually probably going to happen was like a cop would shoot someone like just yeah it was really silly i mean i do think the movie is irresponsible and will be misinterpreted and surely yes. it has been already by yes. many people but that's not how that works as you say no. but it was interesting to watch it because they have said in interviews, and I think that they're definitely sincere, that they were not attempting to make a movie that like validates this person's behavior. And at the end of the film, he does violent things that are clearly bad. Like, you know. But the way the whole movie is set up is that like every fucking character in the film just bullies him. 
In a totally egregious and out of nowhere way. Yeah. He's like persecuted by a bunch of teens in the first scene. So they're like attacking him to steal his sign to bully him. And then there's just this long string of like multiple black women who either kind of reject him romantically or slightly rude to him on public transport or like or his social worker who tells him he can't have medication anymore. And it's like, this is bad optics just in general there. <laughs> and then it's like the th- whole situation with his mother, which is so kind of overwrought and cliched, where it's like he has this really close relationship with his mother who he takes care of. And then it's revealed that she had an affair with Bruce Wayne's father and the the Joker is like their illegitimate child. And then once he goes to go and confront Thomas Wayne by breaking into the opera and sort of like disguising himself to go and confront him, Thomas Wayne is like, no, your mother worked for me and was obsessed with me and was like a schizophrenic stalker. And actually you're like this adopted child and all this stuff. So it's like the whole thing is pinned on his evil mother who had mental health problems. But also it's like, so there so there was absolutely, he never saw at any point before that any sign that his mother had any of those issues because right up until now he she just seemed like a sweet old lady and they had like a really nice if overly close relationship it was like fucking nonsense (laughs) yes and like his first episode of violence is that these finance bros like bully him on the subway and like singing a whole show tune which they've memorized I did see someone point out that scene is very awkward and silly, but I did see someone point out on Twitter, which I thought was a valid point that that song was like a massive hit at the time period where this movie takes place. Like chart topping hit, like multiple versions of it recorded. So fine. And like, yes, it is plausible that some like rich white guys would be assholes to people on the subway, but it's again, just like out of the blue, they just decide to like, bully this man in order for him to kill them, right? Like, that's why this is happening, so that he can... And it just, on and on, every single person he interacts with is horrible to him, so that he gets to this point, right? And it's just, like, that's not how life works, though. Like, that's really not how anything works. But they need to get to the end, where he's a murderer. Therefore, they have reverse-engineered this whole situation. Which is why it's so bizarre to, like, see the really sophisticated characterization you get in The King of Comedy and Taxi Driver and kind of the way those two characters definitely are outsiders and are living the same kind of downtrodden New York existence and are really fucked up. But like you can tell that most of that is kind of self-generated even though there are kind of societal factors that play into it and it's like a very, very thoughtful and like realistic scenario. And then in this, it's just like, you are just incredibly hungry to find a way to turn this character into a tragic, like, oppressed figure. Even though, as Morgan said, the film is not like, oh, this guy's doing stuff that's good. It does, in the end, completely validate everything he does. And also, structurally, it ends with him victorious. Like, even though he's doing something that's quote-unquote bad and he gets arrested at the end... He wins. Like, he is becomes, like, this really notorious character. Everyone in the city is obsessed with him. From the Joker's perspective, in any interpretation of the Joker, he has won. Yes. Everything to do with mental health in this film is just, I mean, what? What is a mental health, one might wonder? <laughs> <laughs> so there's the stuff with his mother, 
which you mentioned. So he thinks that Thomas Wayne is his father and then he confronts him in the bathroom and Thomas Wayne is just like, no, your mother was crazy. And <laughs> okay. And it turns out that she was at Arkham Asylum. And so he goes there and Brian Tyree Henry, who was in this movie for one scene, which like, why would you God hire Brian him. Tyree Henry? God love him. <laughs> to have one scene. I hope he made a lot of money. Um, and it's just like, oh yeah, I've looked at these files. Like, Whatever the mom's name is. Uh, yeah, she was in here for at this time, and she had schizophrenia and whatever. And then it's like, oh, wait, you're her son? I can't release these records to you. And I was like, that's not how privacy works. Like, what the fuck? I mean, you know what? It's fucking Gotham, you know. But, I mean, that's the least of this movie's problems. But again, it's like, well, he has to get this information. Ergo, how do we do that? We have this guy. Just tell him. And it turns out that, like, he was adopted. She was in there. And she let her boyfriend abuse him. And then where was he when she was in this place? Who knows? And then I guess she just got custody back. None of this is explained. But again, she's the bad guy because she was a bad mom. And then also he's crazy. But no one really, ex the movie definitely doesn't ever explain what actual conditions he well, has. Well, that's the thing, right? Because it's like, it is the type of film that simultaneously uses language like crazy. And also mm -hmm. wants you to take seriously the concept of a character's life being realistically made worse by budget cuts and lack of a social safety net, you know. But the depiction of that is just, like, absurdly contrived. And, I mean, I kind of understand when media avoids giving really specific diagnoses to characters, because often that's unhelpful, and also it's set in a time period when there would be different diagnoses for various things. But it's kind of just like the... They just took all of these sort of stereotypical, neurotypical behaviors and tics. And then also like he's hallucinating and he has anger management issues. And like there's a lot going on. And also because he is still nominally meant to be the Joker, they, they give like a medical explanation for why he has this compulsive laugh. So instead of the Joker being an evil prankster who loves chaos and likes to sow discord and is a sadist, they're like, he's this tragic figure who simultaneously is a sympathetic uh, victim of an unfair system and has mental health issues. And also he has this like unavoidable laugh due to a brain injury, which is a thing. But it's also like so fucking contrived and it plays into the fact that he's like a clown. <laughs> and there's a point where he gets fired from his clown job because he brings a gun to visit a children's hospital. And it's just like, there's too much going on here and none of it is like sensitively or thoughtfully portrayed in like any way. Just the way that this kind of uses the concept of the Joker to try and tell that story just feels so bad and offensive and unnecessary. Because, yes, the Joker is, he is a character who you would describe in sort of, like, the old-fashioned language of, like, fiction as mad. But the idea of trying to give him a medical diagnosis is in itself kind of offensive just as a concept. <laughs> because yes. he's meant to be, like, an absurd cartoonish clown terrorist. And that is all, the best, <laughs> like, the best depictions of him are literally that. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it is often not productive to give fictional characters diagnoses kind of for the reason that you say. It can just be very fraught and bog fiction down. Not that it's you should never do it at all. Like, it definitely can... With a character like this. Yes. And 
a lot of people have compared this movie to You Were Never Really Here, my favorite film from last year, in a, in a negative way, because that movie is about a violent man who lives with his mother, and, like, there's a psycho joke in that movie, like, yeah. and has a, you know, codependent relationship with her, but that is portrayed in a very sensitive way. The mother is not the villain in that film at all. It's just that, like, he's got some issues. And in that film, Lynn Ramsey, the director, never bothers to sort of specify what his problems are. But clearly he's depressed. He has PTSD. Like, he's just, he's got issues, right? And all but of it makes mo- sense. Like, you can watch yes. that film and be like, I don't need someone to give me expository dialogue to like explain what's up with this guy because from yes. like the things that he does and the emotional reactions he has, you can see the way that trauma has impacted his life in a way that absolutely feels organic. Yes. And again, like there are definitely stories where talking specifically about bipolar disorder or autism or whatever can be really helpful and effective. But in a lot of cases, you just don't need that kind of thing. Like the storytelling and especially with film, like visuals can do a lot of that work for you. Actually, do you know what's better than this film? Just like Iron Man's PTSD as a theme. Yes. And this, because, again, there's all this stuff to do with social services, which is never really explained either. And, like, vague talk about his medications and all this stuff about him being crazy is just like, what are you doing? I do not understand. It leads to this performance from Joaquin Phoenix that, like, he's clearly trying real hard, but there's not enough substance to the writing or characterization for the performance to totally make sense, because he's just got to play, like, a crazy person. And what does that look like? I mean, I found it a very gripping performance, because it's so uncomfortable to watch that you're, like, it's mesmerizing, you know? And the problems come as we've discussed, once you start trying to pick it apart and have it make sense on any level. But, like, to watch, I was, like, transfixed and also kind of hiding my face because, like, there's all these scenes where, you know, just, like, really awkward social situations that work really well because they've just fucking zoomed the fuck in on Joaquin Phoenix's face. I really... I didn't... Again, I didn't think it was bad, but I was not that compelled by it, which was disappointing to me because I love him yeah but also this is the issue though because you've seen like all of his best roles yes this was not it i also was bothered by the fact that they'd had him lose so much weight for no reason like clearly i think that may have been his idea i yeah i was i was just gonna say like i don't know who was, was the generator because like of the that. joker is thin in the comics but it's not like the joker has a particular appearance that is necessary to his characterization like obviously jack nicholson looks like jack nicholson so, yes. Yeah. And it just, again, it was like, why? It's clearly just meant to, again, make him look weird. And like, oh, he's there's something going on here. But it doesn't achieve anything except to be like, this guy's got something wrong with him in a way that felt just sort of why to me. And it is unsettling. Like, he's really skinny in a way that's disturbing. Like, he's pretty emaciated and like his rib cage is sort of shutting out from him in a like weird way like his face is very compelling regardless but he's not like he's the most handsome man ever but he has a sort of interesting attractive quality to him when he's playing you know appealing people and in this I genuinely was just like I, I don't like this which is what they're going for but the whole thing just felt alienating to me in a way that I didn't particularly enjoy and I think that was due to a lot of factors but 
I just kept thinking like, but why? Why did he lose the weight? Like, what is this supposed to be telling me? And again, it's just like another thing to add to his weirdness. One of the things that's really interesting about Taxi Driver and the kind of comedy is the fact that De Niro is so traditionally handsome. Yes. Because he is absolutely just good looking in those films. And kind of the whole point is that his behavior is so off that people automatically are just like, this is really uncomfortable, rather than there being this just like glaring chorus of alarm bells. Yes. And it sort of acknowledges the way in which a good looking white man can get away with a lot more stuff than maybe someone else could, you know? And this doesn't have any understanding of that at all. Right. And obviously all of the kind of racial politics are just nonsense. Right. And not that, like, you have to do that exactly. No, no, not at all. So in something like The Immigrant, which is a film that I bring up every other podcast, he's playing this guy who is clearly kind of an asshole from minute one, and he's manipulating the Marion Cotillard character into working at his sort of Moulin Rouge-esque theater slash brothel. And so much of that character is that he has to sort of present himself as like a businessman who like looks nice and is trying to charm people and is obviously a very uncomfortable person under all of that but he has to be attractive for that to work and like he approaches her at Ellis Island to sort of get her off the island illegally and um seems like a like attractive nice man right and then you find out that actually He's like an awful person. And that kind of dichotomy is part of what makes that character interesting, right? That would be much more interesting in this film to have some sort of like what is going on with this guy dynamic. And like there's a, the whole thing with Zazie Beats who plays the woman in his apartment building who he becomes obsessed with. So you, you find out at the end that he has been hallucinating these like dates he's been going on with her, which, which like, is like God. quite clear from early on in the film, but yeah, but like they don't explicitly yeah. you know, say this, but even just the thought of like, <laughs> like, it's just nonsense. The whole thing is nonsense. She's this like, you know, attractive put together woman. And it just is so silly. The whole thing is so silly. And he's like acting creepily to her for minute one. And well, don't you understand? The film's trying to comment on the way that creepy men are creepy to women. Oh my god. Like <laughs> By <on>. saying nothing. <laughs> and this sort of reveal at the end is that he like shows up in her apartment and she's like, what are you doing here? Because her apartment, she just left the door open? Like, <laughs> what? Yeah, she left the door what? open in her like crime-ridden like poverty apartment. <laughs> yeah, sure. So again, there's just no... Like, the storytelling is so lazy. But, like, also, the the thing, this reminds me of, like, the thing with the mum, when he goes to confront Thomas Wayne, and she's like, and he's like, oh, yeah, she was crazy and obsessed with me. I was like, oh, okay, we're actually going to do some real social commentary here. Because, of course, that is what the extremely powerful man would say after, like, blackballing a woman he'd raped and then, or had an affair with and then wanted to get rid of her. And it's like, oh, no, actually, he was right all along, and she was just, like, just mad using precisely that type of language the exact same thought process i was like oh well yes of course and then when they were like no she was literally locked up in an insane asylum i was like okay so that's a different direction to go in here sure which leads us to the uh class commentary such as it is in this film which makes no sense this is the sort of 
overall theme of this movie, right? Is that it thinks it has stuff to say and actually doesn't at all. So he kills these um, like Wall Street guys in the subway. It's like three people. Yeah. You know, it's basically like one murder, right? And he's dressed up as a clown when he does it. And they work for the Wayne company. And so Thomas Wayne like makes a public statement. And this leads to literally an uprising in the city. Everyone starts dressing like a clown. It's like the inciting incident of this mass social movement. I was like, I feel like this one murder well, would probably okay. not... It, it makes sense to me that sometimes like a really weird, noticeable person on the news or like a pop culture event will become a symbol to a social movement, right? So I'm like, okay, I will accept that. And also, this is kind of loosely inspired by a real event that happened in New York, which was there was this guy named Bernard Goetz who, during like the height of the kind of crime wave that this type of film is kind of taking place during, he shot several young black men on the train in what he described as self-defense. And basically there was like a, a lot of people in New York were like, this was a valid choice. He was completely fine. He should get away with it sort of thing. So that was kind of like a racist vigilante response to what was perceived as a problem with young black male criminals in New York. So this kind of takes that same idea and maps it onto basically a class war where someone has shot the 1% on a train and that person was wearing a clown outfit. <laughs> I don't remember to take this very seriously. But the, the actual way it kind of pans out after that, even though I think I am clearly a little more open to the idea of a bunch of idiots wearing clown masks, because like people wear anonymous masks in real life, like fine. But then after that, there is like no evidence of any kind of social organizing or protest movement or any any more sophisticated politics of the way the class divide has causing problems in the city. And it also has no respect for any of the protesters at all. It's just like, oh, these are just like a bunch of shit idiots who are obsessed with this like clown murderer. And it's like, you're all you're simultaneously trying to tell me there's social injustices in a protest movement and you're also shitting on the protesters and depicting them as violent idiots. Like, do you know what felt are much better than this? All of the Purge movies, which are about this <laughs> and are good. They're very dumb, but they're good. And they're about this. <laughs> right. Well, see, this is the difference, right? Like, obviously, individual murders can have a huge effect. Like, look at any of the, like, young black men in America that have been killed by, like, police or whatever in the past five years that have had huge effects on society. But with this, it's, like, random white guys <laughs> with no... And the movie doesn't give you any of that context for, like, why this might set off this... Thing. Well, I think we see the sort of the visual storytelling of the fact there's a lot of crime and poverty in Gotham. You know, I'll accept that. No, sure. But like, why this particular, but like the class situation, yeah. right? Like that doesn't, like if that happened in New York now, that would certainly be a big news story. But then everyone would just move on. And New York has a very low crime rate right now. But if the crime rate were higher, then it would be less notable for something like that to happen. So... I mean, I think the more realistic result of if, like, three Wall Street bros were killed in the subway in this film would be a colossal police crackdown funded yes. by wealthy white conservatives. But instead, Correct. they have a protest movement of violent clown assholes, most of whom are kind of, like, I think most of the ones we see are also white men. So it's like, the whole thing is, like, very much kind of focused around white male characters 
which in some ways makes sense and in other ways is just like very clueless because it makes sense for like Joaquin Phoenix's character to be really obsessed with the idea of having a father figure, which is like an interesting, although very common driving force in this type of film, you know? So he is really attracted to De Niro's TV presenter character and also to the idea of finding a new father in the form of Thomas Wayne. But the fact that it's like the protest movement is just a bunch of like anonymous bros wearing clown masks and like hitting people, as we've said. They're all a bit of a, you know, Todd Phillips, he's a silly billy. What can I say? Yes. And then the Joker is like, I'm not a political person. I don't care about this. So simultaneously, there's this like huge movement going on, but he doesn't affiliate himself with it. But it is also his movement. And at the end of the movie, there he like tr- is like standing triumphantly in front of them while they cheer. So there's just no coherent. I mean, if they if they could have dug into the bit more, I would have had more respect for it, right? Because it's certainly true that people can unintentionally become the face of a movement that they don't buy into or don't understand, right? And that is like an interesting story to tell. But because there's so many different elements going on in this film, and because the film, as you say, ends with him like victorious, it's like, oh, so at the end, I guess he is kind of somewhat accepting that mantle because he really likes the fact that he's now famous and beloved and people think he's really impressive. But also, like, the stuff that he's doing is nothing like the DC Comics character, the Joker. So it's all just really chaotic and messy. Obviously, there's, like, a lot of different interpretations of that character. But if it becomes, like, a kind of a piece of, like, hard-hitting social commentary, it no longer really functions that well. Well, right. I mean, it just doesn't have any connection to the comics. I mean, I haven't read the comics, but I've seen other film versions of this character. And the whole point is that he is the foil to Batman. Like, that is why he exists. That's the whole deal. And so without Batman, the character just doesn't work. From the first moment this movie was announced, people already kind of had objections to the concept of giving him both an origin story that's sympathetic, but also just an origin story in general. Um, And also it kind of was already covered really succinctly in the Dark Knight movie because they have all these scenes where he shares things that might or may not be his origin story. And the point is that he's a liar and also his origins are irrelevant because he's just chaotic and evil and has like a twisted sense of humour. And the character doesn't need to be that deep to be effective. It's, It's kind of the point. Like you can tell a really good story about this character without any particularly deep or complex social insight like I think by the time this episode goes out I think probably my review of the new Harley Quinn cartoon will have come out maybe not maybe a few days later but that that show is really fun and it has like a simple cartoonish but adult rated depiction of the Joker that actually works and says stuff about society without being like here's some real deep ramifications from his psyche yeah and I mean I always feel this way about um the play Othello also which I realize may seem like far away from this but the Iago character in that is one of the best villains in like literature fiction ever. And there are always some productions that really want to give him like psychological and rational motivations for his behavior. And the answer in fact is that he's just evil. Like he's just an evil person. And that is the point. And if you try to sort of humanize him, it makes the play much less interesting. And That's the case with this character too, right? Like sometimes the point is that there's just not that component of a character 
it's about all of the other characters attempting to deal with this pure chaos agent. And the kind of the whole reason why this happened is that it's just completely fueled by a desire to be taken seriously and an insecurity in the genre, you know? Because there are certain characters that you can definitely do a film that is kind of of this tone. The fucking Wolverine movie was the, the kind of the precursor to this and it was R-rated and it had some like serious adult themes. Great film. Much better written and characterised. But then there are some characters where it's like you don't need to do that with this, you know? Yeah, it's because like the Joker as a character has such like an obsessive fandom. The, it kind of feeds into itself. It's like they want to really take themselves seriously. Whereas you don't see this happening with like the fucking Twilight franchise or something. You know, it's like you don't see people who are obsessed <laughs> with something which is like fundamentally quite silly. You don't see people like fucking beating down the doors of a movie studio being like, in order for us to like validate our attachment to this material, it needs to be done as like an adult film that is aping other more serious original films in the past. Like it's not necessary. We can just enjoy the trash. <laughs> Well, and what's so ironic is that The Dark Knight, which was the first big superhero movie that everyone like freaked out about. And when it didn't get nominated for Best Picture, there was like a riot. And that's literally what led to the Best Picture field being expanded from five pictures. And I haven't seen that movie in a long time, so maybe my opinion will have changed. But I love that movie. I thought it was great at the time. And Heath Ledger obviously is incredible in that film, right? He's playing a version of this character who is just there to like fuck with Batman. And so the lesson they took from that like serious film, capital letters, that was widely respected by everyone, made a fuck ton of money, won an Oscar for the performance, and that everyone thought should have been nominated for more Oscars, was to do like the opposite thing. It's when you really want recognition from daddy. Yeah. Ex- yes. Exactly. Which is why we've been having this stupid argument with Martin Scorsese for the past month. Yeah. I mean, I don't even care about him that much, but leave the poor man alone. He shouldn't have to be having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, yeah, it's absurd. There's one last thing we should mention about the Joker characterization and performance yes. here. Yes. Which you mentioned in your review, and I saw the film and I was like, she is so right. And I have not seen mentioned anywhere else. And I obviously haven't read every single review, so maybe I've this also not, because I'd but... forgotten about this element until you brought it up before we were recording. And I was like, wait, I actually haven't seen this mentioned either. And I'm kind of surprised because it felt like it was a very clear element of the film. And that is the queer subtext of the Joker. And I think the reason why fewer people are picking up on this is maybe because a lot of the conversation about this has been so kind of married to the idea of sort of heterosexual masculinity and incels and that sort of thing. But there is a very clear negative queer villain subtext here, you know, and I'm in the show notes I can link to sort of a Twitter thread I did about it which includes some sort of illustrations but basically uh, probably most of our listeners are aware that there is in Hollywood a long tradition of queer coded villains so this isn't really the same as being like a villain is gay it's more like a villain has characteristics which are associated with queerness so the best known examples are often Disney cartoon villains like Hades or Ursula. You know, Ursula was directly inspired by uh, drag queen. Hades is quite camp. There's a lot of these characters who, you know, they combine sort of gender nonconformity with predatory behavior. And the Joker is definitely one of those characters. Like one of his key traits is that he wears makeup. His sexuality is very ambiguous. Like he has this abusive relationship with Harley Quinn, or at least has had one since like the late 90s. But at the same time, his relationship with the with Batman is very obsessive. And this isn't something that is like 
oh, it's like this unintentional accident. It is explicitly written into a lot of the comics. Like, obviously, some creators are not aware they're playing into these tropes, but like some definitely are. And um, there's literally an interview with Frank Miller, who is one of the most famous comic book creators of the late 20th century in America. And he described the Batman Joker mythos as a homophobic nightmare, not in the sense that the, the, the material is homophobic, but in the sense that it's like homophobic panic, you know, afraid of the sexual threat of the Joker. And he kind of talks in this interview about how he was intentionally portraying the Joker as gay, as sort of sexually threatening, wearing lipstick. You can Google images of the Joker and once you're kind of informed about this subtext, it is quite clearly part of his history, right? And in this film, you have all these scenes where uh, Joaquin Phoenix is kind of applying makeup in front of the mirror. And the other clowns who are portrayed as normal working Joes who are in his kind of clown agency, we always see them, either they're not wearing makeup yet and they're just sitting around having a cigarette in the break room, or they've already put their makeup on and it just sort of looks neutral, you know? It doesn't have any particularly gendered element. Whereas we have all these scenes where Joaquin is like really obsessed with a kind of changing his appearance and finding new ways to express himself. And like the body language he has, like, you know, there's scenes where, you know, he dances with his mother. There's this kind of subtext of like, when a creepy man is too close to his mother, that's like an old kind of homophobic trope that goes back to things like Psycho, you know? And then there's scenes where he is sort of dancing and he's like playing the woman's part while dancing with himself. But when he finally gets to the end and he has this triumphant speech on live television, his vocal patterns change in a really explicit way where he sort of starts to talk in this like mincing, slightly camp tone. And he's like adopted this theatrical persona. And all of this added together, I was just watching the whole film like, wow, they've really like lent into a lot of these queer coded villain themes. And in a way that I'm pretty sure wasn't even intentional. You know, it's just like, that's just what you're, you've absorbed all of this from the culture and that's what's come out. And it's really kind of uncomfortable and bad <laughs> and hasn't really been like a part of the conversation for this film yeah i mean well brief sidebar all the dancing is like the music they use <laughs> for that is so self-serious that i was on the verge of laughter and the fact that everyone is taking that seriously is beyond comprehension to me but anyway he literally in the big speech at the end quotes a streetcar named desire you don't get more explicit than that. Like, it's pretty... I mean, I think he's he's saying one of the, the female lines from that. I didn't write it down. But um, it's so obvious that that's what is happening. To the point where I actually wonder whether it was in some way intentional in that scene. And his, like, obsession with De Niro's character. Yes. They clearly don't really have any deep ideas about it. But when you add it together with all of the other sort of troubling and or just inconsistent areas of characterization with that character, it's just like, what what is happening here? And the fact that it doesn't appear to have been noticed by anyone is just perturbing to me. I mean, I remember when I was posting about this, one of the responses I got, like from several people actually, which really made a lot of sense to me, was that part of the reason why people really don't discuss the Joker's sort of queer subtext is because so many of these queer-coded villains have been reclaimed. No one has any desire to, like, reclaim the Joker right. as a queer-coded villain. Like, that is not his role yes. in the culture, you know? When you see characters like Ursula, there's an attractiveness to them, you know? There's an appeal. But of course, 
one wants to reclaim that type of character because like they're cool and fun and like there's something identifiable about them and that's the reason why so many people sort of attach themselves to those characters as kids and with the joker it's like the the actual cultural impact is completely opposite like this is this sort of avatar of sort of misogynistic abusive men and in the recent canon like his relationship with harley quinn is very explicitly a story about an abusive partner and also of course he's you know got all this kind of incel stuff as well and people were like, well, you know, he's not queer coded. And it's like, no, he he is definitely queer coded. And like, there are actually examples of people talking about that decades ago. You know, this is definitely a part of his character to the point where his famous creators who've worked on him have talked about this in interviews. But just the fact that people don't want to claim him doesn't mean that the subtext isn't there. It just means that the subtext is still functioning in its original intention, which is homophobic propaganda that seeps into your brain on a low level that you don't notice. <laughs> yes. And the sort of, this character trope goes back to, like, the beginning of cinema. Yeah, like, black and white movies. Yes, but most people don't watch those films, so they're not familiar with that historical context, which is just the way that it is. And so the whole concept of this is built around the Disney characters, which are great examples of this, but they're quite friendly examples, right? So nobody wants to think about the Joker as an alternative because the sort of negative alternative isn't as culturally familiar to us now. But as you say, it is real though. So... I mean, I just remember finding it very wild when that James Bond movie came out and people were kind of talking about Javier Bardem's character is like, oh, it's the first like gay villain in in Bond. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) There was like a scene where he's like sexually harassing Bond. And obviously sexually threatening villains are not new. And sexually threatening, like, gay villains, that's not, like, positive representation. But the fact that, like, film critics who should know these things were not writing about it in this case is really odd to me. I mean, maybe it's just because the movie doesn't really go anywhere with it. But I found it really noticeable and very off-putting. And, yeah, an ugly film. That's my review. This movie is ugly and gross and bad. And um, don't watch it. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening to this month and a half late episode on this bad movie. We will next week be discussing Knives Out, a better film. I feel comfortable saying that even though I haven't watched it's just really it yet. really entertaining. Really entertaining film. I'm excited about it. So yeah, that will be coming next week. Uh, we also have on the Patreon currently uh, a Little Women book club. So if you would like to read along with me. I am posting my my updates from my reread. Uh, I'm around halfway through at the moment and I'm dying. It's really satisfying and also ripping my heart out of my chest. So catch up with that. If you haven't read it before, this would be a great time to pick it up for the first time. It is a delight. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to the Patreon, it is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our readers find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.